If you liked hearing Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson provide secrets on negotiating for total compensation, dealing with microaggressions, or simply being able to just be your authentic self, then welcome to season two of Secrets. Are you one of the only on your job? Do you wonder why the same type of people continue getting promotions? Have you dreamed of getting to the top but don't know how? Welcome to Secrets Season 2, a podcast devoted to showcasing dilemmas faced by underrepresented employees in their quest to climb the career ladder. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have experienced the corporate grind for more than 20 years. Now they want to share their adventures, pitfalls, and C-suite secrets that they've learned along the way. So let's fill up those cups and get started. Here are your hosts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Seekers. We are continuing our Women's History Month podcast specials. And today, I think we got another one for you. Ricky, what's happening today? Man, OMG, Keith, we recently had the opportunity to speak with just a true legend in the game regarding fight the, the fight for justice and equality. And man, it, this right here was when I tell you I was sitting there like with my mouth open. We both were. <laughs> you know, like sitting there with my mouth open. This was like talking to to your your uncle or your aunt who just got all the tea. They know everybody. They can tell you about everything. stuff that was going on. And all I can say is like this was a gem. Like this I felt was. like like I felt like we stole something today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, yep. know? you know. So who we talked to? We talked to Missy Lane Brown, man. Missy Lane Brown. And I think that the, the the biggest the biggest thing I can tell you now, again, we told you to do some research. We told you who we was gonna be speaking to. Elaine Brown is just amazing. I mean, not only are they gonna be making a movie about her, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know like it. she was at ground zero, man, with the Black Panthers. Absolutely. And you know, People have this misconception about the Black Panther Party and what they were all about at the end of the day, but they coalesced with a lot of white groups and other groups to try and push the agenda forward. And they had a 10-point program that they operated on. And in that plan, which we'll include in the show notes on our episode, they talk about just fighting for education reform, fair housing, the end of police brutality, and job creation, just to name a few areas. We still talk about this shit today, Ricky. Exactly, right? exactly. So this is why, again, the excitement comes into play because it wasn't like we was talking to somebody and they was talking about, like, the Underground Railroad. Right. It wasn't like they was talking about something crazy, like like what you, you just read about but you don't you, you haven't heard about. We talked to somebody who was actually in the throes, and, you know, you'll hear her talk about... Coretta Scott King, you'll hear her talk about, you know, Betty Shabazz, you know, all of these folks like this is like this is real. But besides like challenging police brutality, let's just start off by speaking to a few of the other accomplishments that the Black Panther Party launched that included more than 35 survival programs, mm-hmm. survival programs. Teaching people how to survive. Exactly. And provided community help, such as education, tuberculosis uh, testing, legal aid, uh, transportation uh, assistance, ambulance services, and the manufacturing and distribution of free shoes to poor people I mean, look, of particular note was the free 
Breakfast for Children program that spread to every major American city with the Black Panther Party chapter. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, we're still doing that today. Still doing it. The federal government picked up that program, still doing it today. I can tell you, I was just talking to one of my buddies, you know, Big Mel, Melly Mel. He was like, man, I remember when I used to go in Vallejo and get the free uh, free uh, <laughs> breakfast lunch. You know what I mean? There like, you that's go. crazy. You know? It is crazy. But again, Elaine Brown has something to do with that. That's right. She, she led the party for a while, for a minute. So that's why this is so important today. So Secret Listeners, you know, our time with Elaine was so amazing that we're actually creating two episodes out of this conversation. <laughs> wow. We had Elaine for about two and a half hours. Yeah. She was bringing the heat. And just to step back for a second, you know, many may be wondering how this all fits into the secrets universe and what we're talking about. For us, it's important that we understand history and how it actually impacts underrepresented employees if we really want to make systemic change at the end of the day. So we really wanted to showcase a historic voice in the social justice movement, you know, to just bring this forward. And again, we enjoy certain liberties today that we don't even really understand how they came about. We just grew up with them. So their expectations, right? Our kids have programs that they enjoy today. Right. And we sometimes don't even realize where that even came from. No, totally. And so in this, the first part of this uh, podcast series that we're going to be doing with Elaine, you know, today's episode, we will find out who Elaine Brown is and how she came to be. She'll provide us a look back into what were the influences for her involvement with the Black Panther Party. And uh, we'll close this first part of, of our conversation with Elaine uh, with her speaking to her thoughts on today's Black Lives Matter movement. So, look, let's just enjoy part one of this conversation with Miss Elaine Brown. Take it away. Hey, Sickers listeners, welcome to our podcast. As we told y'all, we're going to be doing our thing for Women's History Month, and we're delivering today. I can tell you it's an honor to have a historic figure with us today. Elaine Brown, we're going to be talking to Elaine Brown. And just to give you a little bit of her biography, Elaine was a former leader in the Black Panther Party. She was the Minister of, of Information. She was also the first and only female chairman of the Black Panther Party. And for over five decades, she's been fighting for social justice and progressive change in the U.S., most recently fighting for radical reform in the criminal justice system. And Elaine, you're CEO of a new nonprofit called Oakland and World Enterprises, which we'll talk about a little bit later, which helps formerly incarcerated people and other underrepresented groups launch their own businesses for cooperative ownership. And so we look forward to talking about that. And on top of all of that, there's currently a major motion picture in the works based on your book, A Taste of Power. So we look forward to uh, all of that. And Ricky, like I said, we got we got a history maker in the house today. So why don't you take it away? Yeah, so look, Miss Elaine, welcome, 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 girl. We've been so excited about this because we, I mean, just when we were talking before we even started the episode, we just, we we have this kindred spirit and we just connect on so many different levels. So again, now we start our secrets conversation by giving our listeners a sense of who they're spending time with. Now, I know Keith gave a small glimpse of who you are. But we know that there's a whole lot more missing Elaine, right? So would you mind briefly sharing some of your story? Who is Elaine? Where do you come from? And how do you identify yourself to the world? 
Well, uh, thank you, first of all, for having me on the podcast. And um, we have connected because we all have a certain sense of humor. People don't know that about me. A lot of people don't know that. But, you know, in another life, I could have been a stand up comedian, I think, because I, I really I don't know why, but people find me very humorous. And, you don't know why? Uh, well, because I tell the truth sometimes and people get nervous when you tell the truth, you know? <laughs> It's like thinking about all the things that the commentary that I running commentary that I could do on what's going on in the world would be, you know, uh, quite a quite a thing to say. But in any case, what I am uh, known for my claim to fame and why I will be historically significant is because I was in the Black Panther Party. I was a member. I was a, became a leader. I edited the paper at some point and so forth and so on. So that's the biggest part of me. And out of that comes almost everything else, because everybody has a childhood that went this way or that. And we did these little things. And Everybody has a story. Everybody does have a story. But in my case, my story becomes big because I ended up in the Black Panther Party. In addition to being having been in the party, I was I, I wanted to be a, a songwriter, singer, songwriter. When I met my friend Alicia Keys about six or seven years ago, um, one of the things we said that was so wonderful that I like to quote is, I said to her, you know, Alicia, if uh, life hadn't happened, I wanted to be you. You know, I wanted to be the person that sat down at the piano and sang my own songs. And she said, well, Elaine, you know, if life hadn't happened, I would have wanted to be you. (laughs) Pretty heavy, huh? Yeah, I like that. So the little private part of me is a songwriter, singer piano player, half-stepping piano player, but pretty good, good enough to play, accompany myself. And um, so I, because of that, I, um, I sang some songs um, for, at the funeral, uh, if you get, well, I don't know if anybody else can see, but you can see there's a yep. picture of a painting of a brother over my shoulder here named Bunchy Carter. He was the founder of the Southern California chapter of the Black Panther Party, uh, which is the chapter I joined. It was the first chapter of the Black Panther Party. And so we developed chapters and this became the first chapter. California being so big, it just became the Southern California chapter, whereas every other chapter was a state. For example, Fred Hampton was the deputy chairman of the Illinois state chapter of the, of the Black Panther. So it was like that structurally, mm-hmm. a paramilitary structure, I must say, because Bunchy was called the deputy minister of defense. And the minister of defense of the party at that time was uh, Huey P. Newton and uh, really the impetus and guiding theoretician and so forth of the party. But in any case, Bunchy was killed in January of 1969. And for reasons I can't remember, uh, his mother asked me to sing at his funeral because people knew that I played the piano and sang. I can't remember why. And so I, I sang Precious Lord at his funeral. And uh, it was a pretty rough time because I was in the same building with him when he was uh, uh, murdered by uh, government assassins, as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, and so David Hilliard, who was uh, the brother of June Hilliard that I mentioned just died yesterday or the other day, was called the chief of staff of the party. And he heard that I had these songs. So he asked me to play some songs that I had written. And I did. And he said, I want you to go and make an album. Oh, that's all you want. You just want me to go and make an album. (laughs) But amazingly, I did because um, I knew a guy who was a jazz pianist, a brilliant man named Horace Tapscott. And um, Horace introduced me to somebody who introduced me anyway. I ended up making an album called Seize the Time. And one of the songs on that album was called The Meeting. And David Hilliard ordained that that song would become the national anthem of the Black Panther Party. So I became the Panther, 
you know, songstress or whatever. <laughs> and uh, so that's another part of my own relationship to things and things that I've accomplished. And right now, you know, I'm, I'm continuing uh, living by the principles uh, that I advocated and, and uh, learned and was educated by, uh, by, into by the Black Panther Party. And so, you know, it's been over 50 years that, you know, I've seen myself as part of the struggle for uh, Black liberation. And that's the most important part of me, as far as I'm concerned, that I'm whatever things that I'm doing, they're all pointing in that direction. Well, that's great. And as we think about just the history, I mean, you, you've you've seen it and you've you've seen, like you said, many, many decades of the struggle for black liberation. And there's a lot that's been going on recently, obviously. But could you like take us back, you know, take us back to the 60s and the 70s and and talk to us a little bit about what was going on then in America and, you know, what what prompted you to kind of get involved with the movement and, and push for social justice? Let me say this. I think that's a great question because, um, you know, everybody has this sort of moment, of, you know, when Christians call it being born again. And the Chinese, uh, you know, we always we were students. We, the Black Panthers, were students of Mao Zedong, among others. And uh, they had a, a thing called Fang Sheng, Fan Sheng, when you saw something and learned something. And there was this moment of enlightenment and you could never unknow or undo it anymore. You can't like go back to the other thing, whatever the other thing was. And so at the time that I joined the party, uh, which was in early 1968, but just before that, remember, we had had so much going on. So let's take it from 1965. And in 1965, you had the great march in Selma, Alabama, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge called Bloody Sunday. And it forced Lyndon Johnson. I don't know why people think he was such a great guy. It forced him. It embarrassed the country because he had just invaded the Gulf of Tonkin to begin the Vietnam War. And so you had the beginnings of the anti-war movement of, in the country. And at the same time, you had a group called SNCC beginning to call for black power, uh, student nonviolent coordinating committee, of the, the head of which at, by that time was probably Stokely Carmichael and Rat, H. Rat Brown. And they were calling for black power. And Rat Brown was saying things like, well, America don't come around, burn it down, burn it down. You had all of this so-called militancy. And at the same time, in 1965, this same year, you had the Watts Uprising, which was the biggest people called the Watts Riots, but we called the Uprising, was the rage of Black people. And it was over the shooting by the police of a man named Leonard Detweiler. Isn't that something? So that was one of the police shootings. And Watts, they tore up Watts for like four days. And everything in the Black community was Watts. You had an area called Baldwin Hills where you had people like Ike and Tina Turner living in Ray Charles where all the sort of entertainment Negroes lived because they still couldn't live in the white neighborhoods. And so as a result, um, you had a situation where tanks were all up in Baldwin Hills. The police went crazy and people were just tearing up all of black Los Angeles over Leonard Detweiler. I have a chapter in my book, A Taste of Power, called Getting Black. And, uh, you know, I just totally went back to all the things that I understood about what the pain of my life was not individual. It had to do with the pain of Black people. It had to do with our history. And I became immersed in everything that was going on in the Black community. And then suddenly we heard about this guy named Huey P. Newton being in a, in a, uh, a shootout, as it was characterized perhaps, with the police. But the cop died and the Black man lived. So it was like not the same, quite the same as everything else. And then that kind of washed over. I was part of this and I was part of everything. Anything you could name that was Black going in L.A., going on in L.A., I was a part of it. I was somewhere in it. 
And then all of a sudden, the second big thing that happened was that Bunchy Carter, the founder of Southern California chapter, came into a meeting where everybody was reading poems. You know how uh, people have all these little cultural things and everybody's walking around being black, wearing dashikis and, you know, doing all this superficial stuff and had a poetry reading. And I read a poem there, too, uh, because I was a songwriter poet in my mind. And he came in and he had about 20 brothers with him. They were strapped like a guy had a shoulder holster with a sawed off shotgun. And I said, good God of mine. And everybody did. We were like, who the hell are these people? <laughs> did it make you nervous when you were doing your stuff? Everybody <laughs> sat up like this. Everybody, got quiet. everybody was like, yeah, brother, how you doing? No, everybody was like. <laughs> so very quiet, sitting at attention. And Bunchy walks up to the front of the room. He said, I wasn't invited, but I came anyway. And I'm here to let you know that the Black Panther Party has now formed a chapter in Southern California. He told, he indicates to a brother on the wall, they're all around the wall, uh, show the poster. There's Huey P. Newton in the chair, the famous chair poster. He said, everybody in the Black community is going to have this poster in your home. The chapter is formed. We're here to say the pig cannot come into our communities anymore because what will happen if the pig comes into our communities now and tries to kill our brothers and sisters? Brother on the wall said, we'll put his dick in the dirt. I said, good God, I'm like, who the hell are these? Everybody was like, oh, really? Are we going to do that? You know, it's like, it's like, like you didn't know what they're saying. And so I'm going to end this point by saying, and so Bunchy was also a poet because he was a Renaissance man. He was a genius. He was a beautiful, physically beautiful and in every other way, but very tough. He had been the leader of the second largest street organization or gang in America, second only to the Peace Stone Nation out of Chicago, which was the uh, Black Stone Rangers, which became the Gangster Disciples, which was headed when it was the Peace Stone Rangers by Jeff Fort. And Bunchy was the head of the Slauson, over 5,000 members strong. These are organized people, the Slaussons. And then there was the Slaussons Vila, who were like the internal strong arm of the, of the Slaussons. And Bunchy was the leader. And so he had all these people with him. And, and so somebody said, well, Bunchy... Um, why don't you say a poem? Because you're a poet and we were there for a poetry reading. He said, read Black Mother. So I'm going to close with this. So he's, he said, yeah, all right, Black Mother. And this is how he, he had a swag in a certain way. He was so fat, fantastic. He was just like, if he entered the room without the guns, you would know he was there. And he said, um, Black Mother, I must confess that I still breathe, though you are not yet free. What could justify my crying start? Forgive my coward's heart. But blame me, not the sheepish me, for I've been sleeping in a deep, deep sleep, and I'll be hazed and dazed and vipers fester in my hair. You kind of touched on movements today, like not necessarily being a, uh, like movements. Can you tell us what you think about like maybe the BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement, and how it compares to back in the day? Well, we we might have used those initials to stand for Black Liberation Movement. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm never sure, and I let it be known everywhere. I'm not sure what Black Lives Matter means. It's easy to roll off the tongue, and it's a hashtag. Is it a movement? I have no idea. Um, you have people in Los Angeles claiming to be the Black Lives Matter movement who fought for and would like to claim that credit for having one help push through the election of George Gascon for the district attorney as a so-called progressive district attorney. Now, this same uh, George Gascon was up here in San Francisco. Before that, he moved to L.A. to run for office. But before that, he was a district attorney of San Francisco. And uh, we worked very hard and pushed and drove and organized for years for him to prosecute the murderers of a young brother named Kenny Harding. Nothing. He turned his head, just like Kamala Harris, by the way. 
who became the attorney general at that time. On the case of, of uh, Mario Woods, who was killed by five cops that surrounded him, had him up against the wall and fired, opened fire on him with 40 some rounds from their handguns. Nothing. Refused to prosecute. We denounced George Gascon. Here they are talking about they're putting in a progressive district attorney. So I'm not clear what the agenda is of those that claim to be part of something called the Black Lives Matter movement is. Painting of a street in Washington, D.C. with the words Black Lives Matter is not a movement. That isn't even a protest. That isn't even what is it? So I'm saying, where is the struggle that we wage talking about from King to a Stokelyan rat to anybody you want to name in that period, uh, which was really what we called the freedom movement, because we, uh, Martin Luther King, you would hear him say, this is the freedom movement. The movement was the freedom movement. Nobody called it the civil rights movement. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. It's a freedom movement. Fannie Lou Hamer, one of the greatest leaders of our time. And so when you look at that movement and that time and all the other places that we give some credit to, what we say is that people got out and did something that would effect some piece of change. Now, the Montgomery bus boycott, it was one year. Those people didn't ride the bus. People walked, organized carpools, all this. And all they got, of course, was the right to ride on a bus with white people, which is kind of sad when you really look at the big, you know, pick. we didn't get a bus, but we got the right to ride with white people on their bus. And so the point I'm making is that, um, what is it that we are trying to accomplish today? Now you have all these uh, sort of college students and white people talking about defund the police, for example. I, they have no idea what they're talking about, but they're definitely not gonna get in the street like the Black Panther Party did and said, all right, you wanna brutalize my brother? We got some shotguns, we're gonna stand by and see how this goes. That changed the dynamic. You had George Floyd, all these people around the world, oh, you know, just with George Floyd, just with George. Wait a minute. How long did it take George Floyd to die? Well, you all recorded it and said it took eight minutes and 47 seconds or whatever it was. And like to say the number too, as though that's some kind of, you know, some, some kind of a monument to something. You watched your brother get murdered and you did nothing but film it? You filmed the murder of one of your brothers? How many people were out there filming? You couldn't have taken one of your little cell phones and thrown it at that cop that had his knee on George Floyd's neck. Don't you think that would have removed the knee? I guarantee you would have removed the knee. That boy didn't even have his gun pulled. We can look at the film and see that. He was sitting there on the knee, had three other people. They all have turned on him. But the point is, you did nothing. You didn't even throw a rock and hide your hand. You could have. There was one person across the street that filmed. You could have been throwing that damn camera at their head and they would have looked over there and been gone off George Floyd's neck. So don't tell me about your concern about George Floyd because you're lying. You're not serious. And you think because you marched in the streets of this city or that city with your little Black Lives Matter sign and George Floyd t-shirts and all this bull and you had you preaching at all the funerals that George Floyd had, you think you have, you have a movement going? This is not a movement. You're not really trying to take anything down. You're not really trying to challenge anything. You're just uh, imitating or what we used to call armchair revolutionaries, social <laughs> media activists, social <laughs> media activists. So if there is a movement here, I don't know what it's accomplishing. I don't know what its goals are. I don't know what it intends to do. But even if I assume they had some seriousness about police brutality, which they do not, they're not serious because they're not acting seriously. See, it's one thing, as Che Guevara said, words are beautiful, 
actions are supreme. I don't see the action. If you think marching in the streets is an action, then you're living in dreamland. You're living like these middle class whites that were all part of the anti-war movement that think they had something to do with the end of the ending of the Vietnam War. You had nothing to do with the Vietnamese kicked the Americans ass and kicked them out of Saigon in 1975. They were jumping in the water trying to get out of Saigon. The Vietnamese fought for themselves. And it wasn't you, the American whites, who were in the anti-war movement that changed. Burn it down. It was the action of the Vietnamese, the deaths, the people they had, the sacrifices that they made, all that they did to fight that long war against an invasion by an imperial force that had 10 times more guns, had bombs, and bombed the hell out of Vietnam, including people like John McCain. So when we look at that, you really don't think that you're taking out your day to march in a rally for two hours, then you're going to go home and eat a vegan sandwich. And you want to tell me you're some kind of radical activist. No. Show me something. <laughs> if I watch all these Wait people watch Kenny Hardy be murdered, and as he, as he bled in the street, trembling and shaking, convulsing from the gunshot wound, people are all around, but took two cops, that's all, with assault rifles to hold back all them gangbangers and thugs, what did you do? Are you bad? You're not bad. They're bad. You're not bad. They're bad. You're not ready to take your little AK-47 that you bought on the down low that may or may not function. You may or may not know how to shoot, but you're not bad enough to challenge these police. You haven't even done that on the street level. And all you're thinking is, oh, it's like, well, listen, the Black Lives Matter people supported a Hillary Clinton. I don't know how you can call yourselves a movement by actively supporting Hillary Clinton. So that is my point. This is not a movement for black liberation. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it's a hashtag. It's a slogan. I would rather BLM stand for black liberation movement as it did back in the day. <laughs> Thank you. I, I hear you, man. This, man I'll this tell is, you what. This is fire. I'm, I, I, we, we've been telling our listeners that yeah. Miss Elaine is coming and she is about to drop some fire and you are not disappointing <laughs> at all. <laughs> That's what he said. He went to he went to jail for that too. <laughs> he made Rap Brown made a speech in Columbia, Maryland, and the people were so angry about something going on with the school system and the school, and so um, their school was making them mad. They wanted to shut down the school, and he stood on top of a car and he made a speech. And at the end of the speech, he said, "If America won't come around, burn it down, burn it down." And they literally burned down the school like the next day <laughs> or that night. <laughs> and I was like, "Wait a minute." It kind of sounds reminiscent to storming the Capitol. Yeah, right. right, right, right. <laughs> Trump ain't going to jail, right? Yeah, exactly. But he went to jail for that and he got another case for that or whatever. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, that was the kind of talk that we had, you know. Uh, remember when the Huey Newton movement, as it were, were was in its, at its wow. height every day in front of the Alameda County Courthouse in, here in Oakland. Uh, you would have thousands of yeah, people gathered yeah. and, you know, uh, marching, chanting, and what have you in front of the courthouse, like free Huey and all kinds of you know things that you do chanting when you're. And one of our chants was, uh, "The revolution has come off the pig. Time to pick up the gun <laughs> off the pig." <laughs> we didn't sing little things like uh, "Hands up, don't shoot." No, we were more like, "Yeah, put your hands up." So that, that, that was the difference. <laughs> My goodness, my goodness, my goodness. We told you that Elaine Brown is the truth. And look, 
Again, there is more hot fire to come. You you only heard a part of it. Part of it. Okay, part two with uh, Elaine will be coming next week. So tune in to hear our converse, uh, how our conversation ends. She has some gems to drop. I mean, it was like... You can't even catch this with a basket. You know what I'm saying? No, like no, it, it was, was a whole bunch of stuff she was dropping. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. And we'll also include the full Zoom version of this interview with Elaine, all two plus hours with Elaine on Patreon, including some of the behind the scenes conversations that we had with Elaine, you know, before we started <laughs> the podcast and after, which was a lot of fun. And again, we appreciate you, all of y'all just listening in and, and being part of the Seekers family. And if you love and like and appreciate, again, what we're giving to you, here's how you can help your brothers out. Like us on Apple Podcasts and write a review. Hey, that's how the algorithm works. That's right. Okay. Join our new uh, group on LinkedIn, our Secrets Transformation Group. Mm -hmm. You know, join that. Consider buying some merchandise or trying our our coaching services. I just can't tell you how proud we are when we see people wearing those determined shirts or those secret sweatshirts with the earphones or whatever it is. We're just just happy about that. So please continue to patronize us with with, with those uh, uh, items. We got some new gear coming out, too. Yeah, we do. We We got some new stuff coming out. And lastly, become a Secrets patron on Patreon. So going forward... Forward, as uh, Keith just mentioned, we're, we're going to be releasing behind the scenes, you know, um, exclusive access, you know, to us. You can get to see how the sausage is made. You know, yep. we'll be able to do those things, you know, as well. And uh, we'll also be uh, having a few other offers, you know, for our Patreon, Patreon patrons, you know, as well in terms of maybe discounts on yep. uh, some coaching and whatnot as well. So again. The interactions with Keith and I, if that's something that you look forward to, if being able to get some of that behind the scenes stuff, you know, just keep tuning in. Absolutely. And so, Ricky, it's time for us to sign off. Miss Elaine over here got us raising our fists in the air. Power to the people. Power to the people, Tommy Smith. And we're about to refill these cups and maybe sing some old Negro spirituals. Somebody, over here. somebody, somebody. <laughs> so, so, thanks for joining us today on Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform and until next time peace take care Thank you all for listening today. Hopefully you gained a secret or two that can be applied as your journey continues. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please subscribe to our podcast, share with friends and donate via Patreon. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Don't forget to tune in next time for more hot fire. Until then, cheers. Cheers.